Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS Rebuild to download it now. Hello and welcome to Under the Hood, a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. Welcome to episode eight of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder of 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host Sanket, the CEO at Synapse. How are you doing, Sanket? I'm doing good, Simon. How are you? Really well, thank you. I'm excited for today because in our last show, we looked at card issuance. We dug into how third-party providers are taking the stress out of issuance and the major disruption. But this week, we're looking at those big old big banks. And we're going to ask this one key question. Why is it so hard for the incumbents to innovate? To dive deeper into this, we are joined by, of course, some phenomenal guests. Um, First up is Peter Helwig, who's CEO and founder of Atmos. Welcome to the uh, Under the Hood show, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about you and Atmos and your background? Yeah, absolutely, Simon. Thanks for having me. Um, My background, I've worked for large banks, uh, Union Bank and MUFG and and small banks, mission-aligned banks, uh, New Resource Bank and Amalgamated. And finally, when I decided I couldn't do what what I wanted to do there, I I started Atmos Financial. Uh, I am the co-founder there and COO. Another individual is the CEO. Um, but uh, I certainly bring banking experience to the team. Uh, and Atmos Financial is all about democratizing climate action, how we align deposits to accelerate the, f- the financial and, and rapid acceleration of uh, climate change and resolutions. Here, here. Great to have you with us and also great to be joined by Andy. I'm not going to try and say your last name, CEO of Chetwood Financial. Andy, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad, Simon. Yeah, I, I'm Andy, and I'll spell that since I was about two years old. But for the record, it's Andy Mills, Eric. So um, I've worked in FS all my career. I started out as an accountant with Deloitte. I worked with Charles Schwab in the first dot-com boom when we were the biggest uh, internet company before everyone else got founded. And then uh, spent some time in credit cards with MBNA and MS before HSBC bought them. And I was with HSBC for about a dozen years mainly in product and proposition roles. And Chetwood is a a bank we started in 2015, really trying to use the potential for new cloud-based technologies in product manufacturer. So we have a slightly different strategy to a lot of new banks. We're not about getting a huge list of clients and then cross-selling. We're all about building cool products. So an example of what we do would be our live lend reward loan, which was the world's first dynamic loan, which automatically gets cheaper as a customer's credit score improves. And you know, if you go look us up in Trustpilot, I think we're the top rated lender in the country. We're about 99% of our customers rate us great or excellent. That's a pretty good rating. Um, well, let's jump right in because we've got some phenomenal uh, kind of panelists here to talk through this subject. But Sanke, do you want to start us off? Why is innovation and transformation from inside the big machine so hard? 
Yeah, I think there are two reasons for this. One is essentially um, the skill set reason, and the second one is just an organizational reason. Um, the skill set reason is what pushed the boundaries of banking traditionally is very different to what pushes the boundaries of banking now. Um, banking was supposed to be um, a very, like, servicing type business and most of the impact you were having were by hiring either finance experts or customer support experts to just bank customer dollars. Um, now, uh, banking has changed into a technology problem where to be able to really democratize access to banking to large groups of people who might or might not have a lot of deposits to keep with you, uh, you have to really optimize how much how much you're spending per customer. And over time, there there have been added regulatory obligations that also increases your cost, not just around customer service, but also compliance. So this, this problem's changed from being kind of like a traditional finance slash customer support problem to primarily being a technical problem. Um, and because of that reason, banks are not really staffed with the right people. And the best engineers usually don't go and work for banks. Uh, um, they want to go and work for technology companies. Then the second reason, which most large companies uh, um, kind of are riddled with anyways, is you build your organization and then changing the entire culture of that organization is extremely hard. So once you're big, it's very hard to just reinvent yourself. Um, and that's another reason why you don't see banks move as fast as a, a new company would. I think that's interesting. There's two parts there, the, the talent inside the organization and then the structure of the organization itself from an incentives, um, KPIs, like uh, culture, all of that, that kind of becomes, it, it was successful at the time the business was built, but now it's hard to change it because it's been so successful for so long. Andy, how do you reflect on that? And there are there other components that you saw in, in your career that were, uh, aside from the talent and the org structure? Yeah, I, th I think, I'd say that uh, definitely. I'd say there's a strategy problem, and there's a focus, and there's a problem statement. So, what large banks try to do is to start with what they do today and then automate it. And everyone's doing a platform migration. If you think about Chatwood, we do 900,000 loan decisions a month, and we have six people doing customer service. And that's because I don't have a branch and I don't have a call center. And you have to live chat with me if you want my product. And I can do that because I start from there. Whereas if I start from a big organization with hundreds of thousands of staff, then you end up automating what they do on a piece of paper instead of challenging yourself to why do you do this at all, right? So I, I think a lot of it is they shouldn't start with today. They should start with tomorrow. No, it's a great point. My co-founder at 11FF, um, Jason Bates, who's one of the founders of Starling and Monzo, often says that banks digitized a paper process, whereas something that is born digital is fundamentally different. And that's a, a completely different starting point. As you say, it, it really does come down to where do you start? So I think the three things, the talent, the org structure, and where you're starting are all all good, good points. Sorry, Andy, go. Sorry to cut you off, Sam. Maybe just one more bill before you go. I think also, these legacy platforms are hugely complicated, costly, and difficult to maintain. And that sucks out investment dollars. It sucks out capability. So maybe all of you good guys are keeping the lights on on your old platform. Good point. Pete, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, there, there's certainly an, an incentive issue. There's there's a lack of incentive to, if, if you're a big bank or a small bank, frankly, to stick your neck out and trying to um, uh, try to create something new and innovate. Um, it doesn't, there's no, there's not a lot of gain to be had from risk taking. Um, you know, of course you can 
gain a little bit more profit. But for, for most of these players, they've been in the business for 50 years, 100 years. And if you just kind of do maintain the status quo, it's worked for them. That that person who, who's ever in charge can keep their job and, and continue going about business. Um, if they stick their neck out to try something new and it doesn't work, um, you know, th- they're gone. So it's just, I think there's an incentive issue. Um, to add to that, I think there's also... Like uh, it shouldn't be super hard <clears throat> for for a large bank to kind of like put I don't know like two million dollars aside every year just to do something new and innovative. Um, like most startups, like it costs you less than two like two million dollars, right? So you could just put a two million dollar aside and then be like, let's just start a couple of companies or let's start one company or one initiative and just follow that along. The issue ends up being. Um, you're trying to imitate other people versus embody that culture value yourself. So you're you're, you're going to try very hard to be able to build something novel and new, um, but you just don't have that culture, and your fabric is quite different. Um, and the best founders and the best engineers are mostly not going and working for this small bank innovation project. Um, so there's a lot to be said about that element, which is it's just you. It's just a very different cultural fabric to build, and most banks are trying to imitate, not actually do something that's authentic to them when they're trying to do something modern. So I, I think I think a lot of founders would be really interested in going in-house and trying to develop something that works for a bank, but at the same time, as soon as as soon as you do that, it's kind of dead on arrival, right? Like you w- once you go into that shop, now all of a sudden your product is being uh, filtered through a giant bureaucratic system with all these different reporting heads, and it needs to answer up to X, Y, and Z. Um, you're losing that innovative innovative uh, uh, footing immediately by doing that. I think um, it's also an attitude to risk. I think. Our bank risk appetite statement, I guarantee you, is the only risk appetite statement in the UK that says we're okay with change risk. So when we wrote our risk appetite statement, we said, look, we're okay with credit risk because we want to go and lend to people who are maybe further at the risk spectrum, and we know we're going to break things. So we're okay with platforms falling over as well. No one is going to say that in a big established bank because they can't. And I think that is also down to the talent and and legacy technology problem because you can't be okay with change risk if your platform being down means none of your business operates for the next month or you lose billions of dollars but actually if you have a microservices architecture and something being down means this tiny piece of what you do is down the rest of the system continues to function that is a fundamentally different um conversation so if you decrease the size of change then the impact of change going wrong is much much less so you can be okay with change risk then andy yeah look that's that's 100 percent right i think we we were lucky because we started with a blank piece of paper so everything is a microservice so if you think changing the prices on our loan product takes a minute to change 2000 price points i know a couple of the big banks in the uk where the pricing is in the code so it's actually a regression test on the machine that runs your ATMs and your card platform and your current account. So clearly you're going to be scared of change in that environment because for us, we're just flipping a table on a microservice. We're not doing anything to the rest of the business, whereas they're actually in the sort of spaghetti, if you like. Yeah, but to Pete's point, even if you started something completely new, like you did not use any code uh, in the existing bank to start it new, the amount of red tape you're going to have to cross because of just the way the organization's built, 
kills the project before it even starts. And we've seen that happen with BBVA and a couple of their initiatives as well. So. Well, and also Fin by Chase and, and many other things. I think it's also the strategic assumptions about what this new thing must do. Because if you measure the kind of these new small businesses uh, that you're creating off to the side, you could even put really great talent in there. You could go headhunt some amazing talent, pay them well. And look, I've worked inside banks. We have the fortune of working with them. There's no lack of talented people trying to do the right things on the inside. Uh, and a shout out to everybody who's working in a bank trying to do, you know, fight the good fight. But it's also the the strategic assumption is often this must deliver in your return. It's got to wash its own face. Um, otherwise, why are we doing it? So whereas you think about a VC um, looking at a neobank, they're thinking about a seven, maybe 10-year cycle. Get your customer acquisition first. Create deep engagement with your user. Solve for those jobs. Show me the net revenue retention. And that's a completely different set of metrics that bankers aren't used to putting onto um, at the lowest level. And the systems and controls that happen in the rest of the group uh, kind of just aren't there. So this assumption that it must deliver in your return is why you see these big bets that go spectacularly wrong, which is big bank comes and tries to do a square clone. Big bank comes to try and do a neobank, then has to roll that back because it didn't deliver in your return, having spent $100 million on the thing. Whereas if you had lots of smaller things and the assumption was not that it had to go back and you know, build, operate, transfer, it has to come into the mothership this is actually the little colony on mars and we need lots of little colonies and some of them will succeed and build the new infrastructure underneath it so i think there's a lot of points to unpack there and um, pete i just wonder what your reflections are on the, the conversation so far are there other aspects that we've missed that are sort of inhibitors and uh, that that are, we haven't mentioned so far um I, yeah <laughs> Yes and no. I, you know, I think that that banks in general, as you said, there are a lot of people that that are uh, that work for banks now that really want to see change and push banks in the right direction. Ultimately, these these shops are are giant, and there's so many people that are um, involved in every single decision um, that that it's just it's impossible to go anywhere. Um, so I, I find that really difficult for banks to to innovate by themselves. I, they're also kind of approaching it from the wrong brand standpoint. You know, you get a lot of new entrants to the market. They have a fresh brand, a fresh image. They can present something new. For Chase to come in and say we're going to do a we're going to do a fintech offering, it's just you know they don't have the brand for it. They don't think they could ever really deliver on that messaging. That's interesting that Marcus by Goldman was uh, borrowing from the brand, but still off-brand somewhat, which I thought was quite interesting. Andy, do you have thoughts there? Uh, and you know, it's really interesting on, on the brand point. I mean, we are deliberately multi-brand, multi-product. So every sub-segment product we have has its own brand, Live Lend, Better Borrow, Wave, Smart Save. And what that allows us to do is to communicate directly with the target customer base in a kind of micro-segmentation way, but it also means if anything goes wrong, I can just kill them. Where if you think, when you talk about risk aversion, if I'm Lloyd's and I've got my black horse on the beach, I'm terrified of a Lloyd's product going wrong because Lloyd's have got the brand damage of getting rid of it, whereas in our business, we'll stand a brand up if it works great and if it doesn't, we'll kill it. We're not invested in the brand. I think that's an interesting point. You've got the permission to take more risks by changing the, the shop window a little bit. Sanket? Yeah, it's. I think Chase Fin just was not a good product, while um, Marcus is. Like that's that's the difference. And culturally, what that's really doing behind the scenes, um, Goldman is enabling uh, um, P 
people in their company and, and empowering them to be able to build something new, while Chase is just only empowering them to make something that's copying something, and that's pretty much it. Um, so it's hard, like, it was just harder to build a much better product uh, with Chase Finn while Marcus is just inherently good product. So I'm not sure how much of that is the brand. It's more so the fear that the, that it creates within the organization to not mess up the brand and thus not making bold decisions um, versus making them and building a better product. Yeah, there's a couple of things there. It's like really orienting in the what the appearance of success versus what make created success. Like I can wear the same shoes as Usain Bolt. It doesn't mean I get to run fast, but I might have the same footwear. Whereas actually, what is it that led that athlete to be that successful? And if I do the work, I can get to it. And I think there's something really interesting that digital businesses do, which is orienting around customer outcomes or orienting around what problem they're solving for their customer because they have no other choice. You've only got so much runway. Like the great thing about being an entrepreneur is it really focuses you. I think there is an, an assumption that having, you know, these bean bags and wearing t-shirts is this really relaxed hippie vibe and you just write some code. It's intense and it's scary. And if the money runs out and you don't get the next funding round, that's terrifying. And this is the thing nobody tells you about sort of building your own business until you go do it, especially in the venture-backed world. I mean, I guess, Sankit, you, you can definitely relate to that and, and uh, as can others on the call, Pete. I mean, there's definitely bean bags. There's, there's, there's still bean bags. It's just, it's a stressful bean bag. <laughs> well, but this is this is this is more to saying to imitation, right? Like they're they're trying to imitate something for for a non-authentic outcome, while in the other case, it's just like like it's just a natural course of things. So. I, I think there is something Darwinian about the true startup mode. So when Jenks, my co-founder, and I started, we literally started with our own money, and it's amazing how little you can spend when you literally don't have any money. And, and if you think actually, particularly in the technology world, the consultancies and the big tech firms have got banks conditioned to think that 100 million is a cheap project. Whereas I think we, we, were, we were in six figures and our, our whole platform was running. But you only do that because you have that lack of money to force you to focus. The constraint-led um, is really powerful. And also, there is a culture, I think, in banks that, like, if it's not big, then it's not going to be impactful. Like, we need to – oh, it's only, it's only well, a couple of hundred thousand. Well, that's not going to make any impact, is it? We do – that's for the lab. You know, that's, that's glorified marketing. It's, it's, you know, we have those people versus actually this is flipping to a portfolio approach. And I really think it's interesting that if you stand back and look at the risk that they have as a group, like imagine if you're a portfolio manager and you only bet on low risk, low return um like investments, then you're going to have a low return profile. And you can see this in the earnings growth of most big banks that because they are only investing in the stuff that's going to make a short term return. And some of that's their board and investors and, and you know, being pushed to be a yield stock. But actually, if you were a better portfolio manager, you might also have some stuff that's higher risk, higher return. And you can buy into a market much cheaper when it's smaller. I think about Square doing Cash App or uh, a firm getting into Buy Now, Pay Later. When those businesses were founded, those markets were very, very small. So buying market share was cheap. There was no guarantee that market would get big. But buying market share is cheap if you do it authentically. So I think there's something powerful there. Um, Andy, I want to come back to a point you made um, 
about uh, the the technology itself. Let's start to unpack some of that. You mentioned you know these big monoliths. You mentioned like hard coded stuff. Have you seen anybody do that well? And and what is it that's different about today's technology stacks that that really enable different, cheaper, better, faster, cheaper? I think I think it's so different. It's almost it's a different language. It's a different world, right? <clears throat> so we build. We build on an AWS stack. We're using Lambda functions and Step and all the rest of those things. And, and uh, if I give you an example, I suppose we last year we built our own decisioning engine to replace one we'd bought off off the off the street. And we were benchmarking against FICO, who had the market leading service, and they wanted to charge me seven figures for it. Having built our own, it cost me about six thousand dollars a year to run it. Because actually, the and it's it's you can't relate the license fee of million plus to the single digit thousands of, of cost to run it. And I think that uh, cost differential is massive. But Pete, I wonder what else it gives you as well when you're in control of your own destiny. Could you organize yourself differently if the thing is more modular and if you have a bit more more control over you know, kind of what's happening in your stack? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you have complete control over the product. Um, you know, Andy's talking about uh, uh, a number of the, the lending products that he has. Um, and that's something that, you know, that, that's its own, entirely its own conversation. With, within banks, the lending format is atrocious and it's extremely slow. And it's very easy for fintechs to come in and gobble up market share uh, because most banks aren't designed to lend into those types of markets, um, both from a price standpoint or from a, from a speed standpoint. Um, so when you have a modular system, when, you, when you're able to kind of build what you need internally and, and create extremely fast decision matrices, then you're just going to be able to, to provide a better product. Um, yeah. I'm interested, Senka, in in kind of like that decision-making process that you see in your own client base at Synapse and how that might differ from an incumbent. Like, how do decisions get made? You've still got people that are going to manage risk and look after risk on some level, right? So uh, what, are the, what are the main differences you see between Neobank and some of the incumbents out there? Yeah, I think the biggest difference is how many people are making a decision. Um, and and this is this is the piece that like people are like, oh, for, for startups you have to work a lot. Yeah, that's because you're doing a lot of jobs initially, right? So uh, things don't become super super specialized. So in most cases, we're speaking like like with Pete. We're we're speaking with Pete, uh, his co-founder, and both of them are like together making a decision at the most one 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 of their investors, right? So it's a small group of people, uh, uh, very forward thinking, rapidly trying to get to an outcome. In a bank, you are speaking with like we we partner with banks, so we go through that sales cycle in a way as well. Um, you you speak with uh, your your. What what shall we call them? Like your advocate. In some cases, that is the owner of the bank. In some cases, the senior VP of the bank. From there, it goes to their compliance team. It goes to their risk people. It goes to their board. It goes to their CEO. It goes like it goes to a bunch of different people. And over a long period of time, while in case of a fintech company, they kind of already know what they want to do, so they're moving forward in much more decisive fashion. In case of a bank, they're observing this market and saying, should we participate or not? So it's just a very different incentive function overall. So so they're a little more hesitant and reluctant, taking longer to make decisions, and there are way more people making a decision versus few. 
I think that's a great point. The classic joke, how do you know you're living in a bureaucracy? It's when everybody can say no, but nobody knows who says yes. Um, and I remember a, a former colleague and, and CTO of, uh, of a bank uh, saying to me, Simon, I walk around all day saying yes to things and still nothing happens. And it's, it, it is the frustration, I think, of many senior and executive of, of that machine and, and, and a lot of folks inside it. So Andy, can have you seen anybody get this right? Can you still be in control of your risk and not have uh, hundreds of policy owners that um, pull out their policy document once PR and update it with an auditor. Do you know, it's interesting. Obviously, I, I used to. Have, I've had a few big jobs in big banks, which theoretically had much more sway than today. You know, I used to run hundreds of billions of balance sheet instead of hundreds of millions of balance sheet, like I do today. I think the stark difference now is there's no adult in the next room in my world, so it goes me shareholder regulator in that order so i think it's a much much tighter thing i think amongst the big banks i don't think anybody is doing a good job of it i think i think it is just it's become a different species yeah i agree i haven't seen anyone that that really compels me to think that um the industry is innovating and able to move as quickly as it needs to move in a, in a quickly changing environment so how do you maintain control in that world, Pete? You know, sort of, uh, is it uh, individual responsibility? Is it um, sort of pushing power to the edges? What, what are the things that you've been able to see and document that, that is, you know, it's kind of getting the regulators comfortable with a different way of working than a, than a bank would? Well, you know, I think Atmos is lucky because, um, you know, we're, we're not necessarily – um, the, the vanguard in this uh, particular evolution. Um, folks like Synapse and others have been around for a little bit. So we're, we're, we're a new player um, here in the market and have able to, you know, we can stand on the shoulders of others that have come before us. But that doesn't mean we're not pushing it in every possible way that we can. And we have a very distinct um, value proposition for our customers as it relates to climate and climate solutions. So we're pushing that element. Um, we, we know where we need to push and we don't necessarily try to push anywhere else. So it's, it's very forceful um, moves in, in one very specific direction. Yeah, you're picking your battles. You know what you want to change and what you don't. Sankit, is that something you, you see as well? Yeah, I think the most fascinating part about fintech now is uh, initially the enablement layer just didn't exist. And now since the enablement layer is existing, uh, we're able to focus on other areas, right? Like in case of Atmos, it's about how do we make banking more ethical, uh, uh, kind of like people who really care about climate change and making sure we, we're not having a negative impact on the climate. Um, uh, they get to subscribe to that product and that ideology generally, and we would not get there uh, unless we solved some other problems before. Um, and then now the exciting thing is like, what happens next? Like once once you also solve some of these problems, what are what are the next set of challenges? So to Pete's point, kind of like everyone's building on top of another person or well, another entity. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of it is just building out the enablement layer so that you can essentially really focus on uh, the value proposition for the customer. And initially that wasn't happening as much and now it's happening more and more. Yeah, Andy, I liked your point uh, earlier as well. Like that, it does always strike me that the banks are trying to figure out how they do what they do today cheaper. Uh, how do they distribute the products they've already got for less cost? The assumption being the products they have are correct, whereas actually the the alternative is there's different tools out there now. How do you make the product the bit that's much more innovative? And you mentioned a couple of examples of of where you've been doing that. What's enabled you to do that? Um, and and what are the things 
things that you think are pushing the boundaries of product innovation in financial services? I think um, you, you mentioned the microservices, right? So we started and we built the stack from the scratch. So we're able to change in-flight products in a way that you just can't do in the old platforms. So we, we built a platform to constantly cycle. I think we've also, architecturally for us, data and analytics is in the middle of what we do. So you'll still find consultancies selling single customer view projects to banks saying, oh my God, how do I change an address for somebody who's got four products with us because they're on four different platforms in two different countries. So so we, we have a, a massive advantage, I suppose, of having that kind of data heft, but it's also focus on decide what you're going to do and decide what you don't do. So we don't do marketing. We have partners with distributors who bring us customers. We have a great marketing agency who does it. But as a function, we don't have a huge marketing team, but we do do data, we do do orchestration, we do do credit because we decided those are our specialisms, whereas you've got a lot of people still trying to vertically integrate and end up doing an average job of lots of things instead of a great job of some other stuff. I really think there is this move from like being the whale to being the school of fish that's kind of interesting, that uh, they're much more nimble, they're much more agile. A whale can still come along and take big chunks at them, don't get me wrong, but the, the fish that swim together, but you need an architecture that's kind of capable of that, and you need specialists that, that kind of can abstract some of that pain, I think, to, to really make that work. No, absolutely. And I think it, it's not just an IT architecture, it's a business strategy. So if you, if, you know, on our, on our journey, we started off with fixed rate, fixed term loans, then fixed term savings. And that's deliberate. A, the margin is better. It's a great place to innovate. But the transaction velocity and the risk associated with those products is much lower. So you don't l- lurch into let's have a current account because it's costly, difficult to do, and you don't, you don't get paid to do it anyway. Interesting. The strategic rationale of why you do it and the team you build underneath it is is kind of super interesting. Pete, I want to get to uh, something else as well, purpose. I mean, banks, when they were set up by the Quakers, I think in the 1600s, 1700s, were were very purpose-driven animals. Is it it kind of coming back to that a little bit? Are we finding our roots? I hope so. Um, You know, I think purpose for different people is different things. And um, but but for, for everyone, uh, I would say we all want our money to have purpose out there in, in the economy. And what people don't necessarily understand is, is what their money does in a bank um, and where they put that money, what that bank does with it, does, does have real impacts on the economy. Um, that creates loans for small businesses or um, large fossil fuel companies or uh, personal mortgage or whatever it might be. In the case of Atmos, it's it's all about climate, and 100% of our deposits are dedicated towards resolving climate change. Um, there's a big educational gap that I think exists that we also need to close, and so people understand um, that that money does have purpose and change that relationship that people have with their money. 100%. It's so interesting to me that you big banks talk about how much they're going to spend on purpose. Like, uh, here's our fund for X and our fund for Y. Whereas the innovation is really around how the customer's money is having impact and the, what they do day to day is having impact and, and really attached to the purpose. And that's a subtle shift, but it's the difference between trying to carbon offset feeling a bit bad versus like actually reducing my use working on uh, battery technologies like the productive nature of what i do is quite different isn't it Andy? Yeah. I, I think look purpose isn't a mouse map 
I think the first thing that we wrote down when we started was use technology to make people better off. And the intellectual challenge at the core of our business is we need to deliver returns that are above the market by giving customers a better deal. And, that, that, and that's quite a challenge. But the way that we do it is because we have disciplined participation. So 95 plus percent of our customers, we're the best loan rate they see in the market. But what we don't do is to do the teaser rates. So we don't offer the guy the 2% loan to screw everybody else. We just focus on the guy who's getting screwed. And, and, I, and, I, and I think um, you know, one of the things we said early on to our investors, and they've been hugely supportive, is retail banking is like the airline industry. If you add it all up, profits and losses, back to Wilbur and Orville Wright, they didn't make any money. Because every bright idea in retail banking is a remediation project three years later, right? You look at PPI and late fees and overdraft fees and all the rest of it. So I think it's more sustainable to start off with, let's do good for customer, let's do good for us, we need to get paid, but let's not do any clever idea that's going to see them getting screwed, you're going to pay for in the end. And that alignment of outcome to customer is really powerful. Again, um, borrowing a phrase from from Jason, my co-founder, banks had become like bad uh, landlords. They were trying to catch you out with the fee and change the payment date and increasingly need to become more like good waiters. You barely notice them, but they're just kind of there when you need them. And that's a fundamental shift. Yeah, I mean, we're just in the middle of the final stages on our credit card. And one of the features we built into the app was a repayment calculator that says to the customer, look, if you pay the minimum, it's going to take 20 years to clear this balance. If you put an extra five quid, that's going to be three. If you put an extra 10 pound. And in customer research, people's minds were blown. They're like, I didn't even know this. My bank didn't tell me this. My card provider didn't tell me this. But I think if you start from that perspective, let's see when we launch it. But we think you're going to get a lot better customer engagement by telling them the truth. I'm interested, Senka, in your views as to what can these incumbent banks do more of? You touched on it a little bit about talking about specialists. Um, you touched a little bit on, you know, take the two million, go somewhere else. What would your playbook be if you were going to be sort of building the building the next version or the, or the child of the parent bank? What would your playbook look like? Yeah, I think um, before even the playbook, I think my fundamental principle would be um, how can you make doing good profitable? Because if doing good is profitable, then it's going to it's going to be like self-governing. It by and large goes in the right direction. Um, and pretty much what Pete and Andy are saying is like to be able to get to a place where doing good is profitable, uh, um, the first thing you have to do is get a lot of efficiency gains. Uh, so how do you really reduce your cost of operating a financial product is extremely important. So what I would do is I would actually be res- like, uh, um, it's funny, as we were doing this podcast, I have to take one bank in mind. And I was like, if I were running that bank, um, what would I do? I would essentially try to get a very low budget approved that by and large gives you uh, uh, a little more autonomy on running the initiative under it. And then the focus is how can you make that product or service that you're building as cost efficient as possible, and then leverage the bank's distribution mechanism to distribute that product. Um, so I think that would be kind of the playbook. Let's just build something new. Let's not use almost anything that the bank has already. Let's be very skeptical about that. Uh, make sure it's a low cost product, and then use the bank's distribution mechanism to just distribute it across board. Interesting. Um- 
Bo Hartman's a good friend of mine. He was the CTO over at Marcus for, for quite some time. We've had him on um, Fintech Insider, our sister podcast, quite a few times. And one of the things he said that really enabled them to succeed was there was a um, an element of governance that was set up below the, um, the exec. And its mandate was primarily to protect Marcus from Goldman, not Goldman from Marcus. And I think that's an interesting mandate, which is actually when something's very, very small, if you measure it as if it was 21 years old when it's three, it's obviously not going to succeed. So how are you protecting that until it reaches a certain stage? And I think that's an interesting um, perspective. Um, how about you, Andy? If you find yourself in a previous job, but you've now you've got at least enough mandate to separate out a little bit of budget and to create a little space for autonomy, how would you go execute on that? You know, that's that's a great question. I, I think I think you have to go greenfield. I think if you if you look in my own experience. First Direct was probably the the one success of a greenfield project, you know, and it's sort of analogous to this because they started with a new ubiquitous technology at the time, which was a telephone, and put it in a different shed, hundreds of miles away from head office, and said, "Get on with it." And they'd managed to get the thing going to a point where, it, well, it's still going today, right now. On the flip side of that example, they've got a customer base that's probably fifty years old, and twenty years ago they were thirty years old, right? So you haven't managed to keep refreshing it. But I think you have to have control of a route to market that is independent and a service that you've got sort of total control of. Interesting. Um, you know, at, at the risk of talking our own book here, we helped um, Standard Chartered build Mox in the very early days in, in Hong Kong and worked a little bit with uh, NatWest to build Metal in the early days. And I think the insight was the same. And both of those are still alive and, and going strong. And we've you know obviously not been involved in either for quite some time. But the original intent, I think, of the funders internally was, was exactly as you say, Andy. It was much about Greenfield, go make this happen and, and protect you from the rest of the group as long as possible. Pete, I want to come back to your point about purpose. Do you think that banks can refine that purpose? And uh, do you hold out any hope for that? Or do you think it's going to need competition to make that happen? Well, I think it's going to need competition to show that there's a market there. I think banks are very reactive. I think banks um, tend to, to look at what customers are doing and what they um, want to, to see. And then they try to offer a product versus being proactive, which is what Atmos is doing. Um, so, so I, I do, do think that there's hope within the banking uh, community. Um, a lot of the, the big banks are putting out statements that they're going to stop Arctic drilling or whatever it might be in the year 2050. Um, that's not nearly good enough. That's just a, a statement out of a PR group that means nothing. Um, so we, we need more people raising their hands and saying that they care about these things. Banks play a huge role in, in, in the climate fight, um, and we do need them to step up. They also need to see that people care. And, and I think I'd come back to what Sankate said about you've got to get your cost right. I, years ago, I launched an ethical investment fund, and it bombed because its returns weren't great. So I think you can't start by assuming that there's a huge group of customers who want to pay for your purpose. You have to engineer your business to deliver your purpose at at least the same returns to them. And I think you can do that with, with modern technology now. But I think the early step of this was, this is great, but my deposit is going to pay 50 basis points instead of 2%. Yeah, and and you can do that if you uh, don't try to integrate into a you know fully vertically integrated bank. Um, if you if you pick apart what you can have impact in, then you can absolutely do that. And um, you know that mousetrap of I'm going to do everything makes it really hard to do anything well, as you said earlier, Andy. 
I think that's a great point. And knowing what you want to focus on and not carrying all of you, not assuming you have to carry all of your existing cost with you. Um, like there's a great thing about uh, legacy can both be a negative and a positive thing. Like how do you leave a legacy means it's a very different thing to somebody who's thinking about retirement as it does to somebody who's trying to get off an old set of technology. So like what legacy does that have? And, and how do you leave your legacy as an executive by doing something different and purposeful and meaningful and cost transformation might be better building something new, starting with just a very thin slice of, of product that's A, Greenfield, or B, somewhat off the brand, but really aligned to, to purpose kind of in and around that. And then, Sanke, um, as we close out on this, do you think we are going to see more and more banks do this well in the next sort of three to five years from an incumbent perspective? Are you seeing that demand to, to start to work with some of the smaller specialists and start to work with uh, different infrastructure players? I don't think so. Just like how like Dell and IBM didn't really innovate and build a smartphone, the, it's unlikely that the banks are going to build the next generation of financial technology. I think it's going to be newer companies. I think they'll still be around. Like um, It'll be a long time before the banks, as we see it, disappear because their cost of capital is just so low. And I think they would just partner with a lot of the fintech companies. Like IBM uh, um, and Dell became suppliers to like other technology companies. So I think we're probably going to see that kind of an arrangement. I am, I'm less convinced that tomorrow, like in next five years, Wells Fargo uh, uh, becomes as good as, I don't know, Chime or Robin Hood or somebody like that. I don't think, I think. I don't think that that's less likely to happen. Interesting. Andy, crystal ball time. What what plays out? Are some of them going to get it? I don't think so. I, th I think that if you think about digital distribution, what that does is bring price transparency in a way that hasn't been the case in the market. So if you think about the loan market used to work 10 years ago, you apply for the 2% loan. They take you in the back room. They say, good news, you've been approved. Bad news, I've looked at your credit file. And for you, it's 19%. Sign here if you want the money. Now those guys can go on the internet. They can get a personalized quote. It takes us half a second to price them alone and give them a personal offer. And what that means is that the pockets of cross-subsidy in the market that the big banks rely on get competed away to the point then they're left with the cost base but not the revenue. And at that stage, in that stage, it's really hard to try and catch up. All of the cost and less of the revenue year exactly. on year is, is kind of not a nice place to be. Pete, um, any hope? <laughs> Uh, you know, I think I think big banks need to lean into what they the value that they add, um, and that's primarily on the, their regulatory framework, their relationship with uh, the regulators, um, compliance, a lot of the back end stuff that uh, fintech providers just will not provide and and just don't have a lot of interest in. Um, so I think if they uh, uh, focus on on those areas and partnering with fintech companies and, and other entities that are a little bit more, whether it be brand forward or product forward, uh, because they can't be, then I think that they'll continue to serve a very important uh, part in the economy. Can I just uh, chip you a, a radical thought to finish? It's an argument I lost in, in a past life, but the big banks should focus on what they've got that the fintechs don't have. So instead of trying to be a bad tech company, why wouldn't you be a brilliant relationship manager? So if the government isn't going to let you close the branches, if you've got the human relationships with your customers, then I'd be doubling down on that rather than trying to do what we do because they'll never do what we do as well as we do. Well, I also think about what are the assets that a global bank has, especially if you're a tier one, licenses in 60, 70, 80 countries, access to local clearing in all of those countries. What could you do with that? 
in and how would you do it um compared to like i often joke about banking as a service is you can have whatever you want so long as it's a debit card in the u.s now that's a little glib and a little bit unfair because senkit and the guys at synapse have done have really deeply broadened that you know, it's starting to go international and it will inevitably come but actually the cost transformation that you can start to make if you've got that low cost of capital if you can play at scale i really do think there is an argument in that andy and i think some of the banks are starting to get there other ones aren't uh, but it's going to be interesting to see, can you actively partner out with the fintechs and start to play a bit of a different role? I really like Sankit's analogy as to like, you become a supplier in this ecosystem and you, you change your role rather than trying to own it all end to end. So I think that's rounding us out really nicely. That that We got through that pretty quickly. So that concludes our episode of Under the Hood. And next week, Lo and behold, we're talking all about third-party partnerships. What makes a good one? How do you get there? How do you get technology integrated? So perfect timing. It's almost like we planned the ordering. Um, and you can. we really hope you join us for that discussion. Thanks so much to our guests for joining this week. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Peter? Uh, they can go to joinatmos.com, and folks can email me at peter at joinatmos.com. Andy? Chatwood.co. And Sankit? Um, you can find more about Synapse at synapsefi.com um, in the same handle on LinkedIn or Twitter. So synapsefi um, on both. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, um, it's just my first name, Sinkat, on Twitter or LinkedIn. Fantastic. You can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or all about 11FS at 11FS.com. Um, remember to hit subscribe if you like the show. Remember to share the podcast, um, spread the word, pass it along. And if you're thinking this was a great show, um, then remember to leave us a review. It helps us so, so much. So please do that. And thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.